0: welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is an interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your faithful host, Scott Dr. G. Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up, makes a great gift. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. This episode features drummer Emery Thomas, who served as Johnny Guitar Watson's right-hand man during the Bluesman's mid-1970s renaissance as a leading R&B and funk act. Thomas, who cut his teeth as a professional musician playing early gigs in his home state of Texas with the likes of Etta James and Penny LaBelle, was a core member of the early 1970s progressive soul band, Max Nan. That's when he first connected with Watson. That group, which released three of its own excellent albums between 1972 and 1974, which were recently re-released as a CD set earlier this year, they backed Watson when he ended a six-year recording hiatus in 1973 with a traditional R&B album called Listen and its slightly funkier follow-up called I Don't Want to Be a Lone Stranger. A change in label found Watson adopting a pimped-out image and fully embracing funk, with Thomas being the only Max member tagging along for the ride. Watson and Thomas became essentially a two-man operation in the studio and churned out some of the era's finest funk records. That run began in 1976 and included the albums Ain't That a Bitch, A Real Mother For You, Funk Beyond the Call of Duty, Giant, What the Hell Is This, and Love Jones. But perhaps the funkiest albums of them all were the two that Watson, Thomas, and some cohorts released under the backing band's name, The Watsonian Institute. Two records were released under that moniker, The Amazing Master Funk in 1978, and a year later, The Still Potent Extra Disco Perception those scarce records are a must for any funk or Watson fan among the seven top 40 R&B hits and other notable tracks Watson notched between 1975 and 1980 were I don't want to be a Lone Ranger I need it ain't that a bitch Superman lover his biggest hit and my personal favorite a real mother for you lover Jones the remake of his classic his blues classic, that is, Gangster of Love, Love Jones, and Telephone Bill. Watson, who began his recording career all the way back in the mid-1950s, was a gifted multi-instrumentalist who landed another four top ten R&B hits between 1955 and 1968. Ego, drugs, and bad record deals got the best of Watson in the early 1980s, and he and Thomas went their separate ways. Watson would go on to release a handful of additional albums and send a few more singles to the upper reaches of the R&B charts. By upper reaches, I mean low on the charts, 50 and higher. But he never again regained the tunefulness or success that he had realized with Thomas. Watson died on stage of a heart attack during a show in Japan in 1996 at the age of 61. Thomas went on to perform in a funk group called Extreme and with other musicians and continues to do so today. In this in-depth interview, the irrepressible and outspoken Thomas shines the light on both the tragically little-known Max and the fierce and enigmatic Johnny Guitar Watson. From the tale of how he first connected with Watson to how he disconnected with him to how he reconnected with him shortly before his death, Thomas pulls no punches in talking about drum attacks, killer tracks, and serious setbacks. So sit back and dig as ET phones home to Truth and Rhythm to set the record straight. Welcome once again to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, where today I'm joined by one of the premier funk drummers of the 1970s, Mr. Emery Thomas. He not only was the central, a central member of Johnny Guitar Watson's funk master uh, works, but also prior to that, a core member of the equally fantastic but lesser-known R&B group known as Max Han E.T., how are you? Welcome.
1: I'm fine, Scott. Thank you ever so much for having me in your studio today, man. I really appreciate your interest.
0: Oh man, very interested. I'm so honored to have you. I mean. The great stuff that you did, we'll get into it, but uh, it's a thrill to get to talk to you today, believe me.
1: As I said, I really appreciate the interest, sir.
0: Now you're coming to us from Los Angeles today, correct?
1: We're coming from high atop UCLA. Yes, we're here on the campus of uh, UCLA.
0: That's fantastic. As we spoke off air, I actually went to UCLA for a while and I used to live out there, so... I grew up working in Westwood, so I know it very,
1: very well. Outstanding. Outstanding.
0: Yeah. Go Bruins, right?
1: Yes, sir. As a matter of fact, we've had a very good week. Uh, overall, you know, it's been overall, it's kind of uh, we're in a, in a rebuilding process overall. But uh, as, I, as I said earlier, we did beat USC. So that is a very, very good vibe over here at UCLA. And uh, to the extent that hey, that made our week, as a matter of fact. Yeah,
0: <laughs> no, no question, man. That's a huge win. Um, But, man, I've been a fan ever since hearing um, – well, a huge fan. I mean, I was a fan ever since hearing uh, some of the Ain't ain't That a Bitch stuff. But, uh, really, we'll talk about it more, but I just want to let you know and give you a sense and give viewers a sense of when I first really got into what you all were doing, and that was with A Real Mother For You. That just changed it all back in 77. And still to this day, I mean, I never get tired of hearing that group.
1: well, um, that was one of uh, Watson's specials. Uh, you know, he, John Watson was uh, a visionary, you know, to, it's like, uh, I don't know if you are into uh, astrology and all, you know, um, but uh, I'm into astrology. You know, I'm Cancer the crab, uh, Johnny Watson uh, was Aquarius, you know, and uh, the water bearer, you know, and the crab got to have water. And uh, I tell people this story. Uh, regarding my association with Watson and other individuals of that sign, you know, Aquarius. As I said, the water bearers, all right, and the crab have to have water. As a young kid, as a young boy, my uncle, my first jazz record, it got me interested in say, uh, in jazz. It was a uh, a record uh, with uh, uh, Wow, God, it, it, it's a saxophonist, uh, Art Pepper. As it was, and uh, uh, it was Max Roach, as a matter of fact. And um, I remember this record, it was doing, as a matter of fact, it was doing this period of the year, as a matter of fact, because it was right about Thanksgiving. And um, my, my uncle lived in Houston, and uh, I was living in Texas City, Texas, which is the mainland of Galveston, right. And uh, we were visiting, and uh, as I said, my uncle played me this record, and, and Max Roach took this incredible drum solo. And uh, the deal was I told my uncle that, you know, if, if I could have that record and he, he told me, I tell you what, if you go back and you make some A's, the next time you come back, you can have that record. I made some A's and he gave me that record, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as I said, that record was pretty much what they sparked me as far as jazz and listening to say uh, someone like Max because Max was, Max was old school but Max was one of the old school conservatory drummers. And he, he was classically taught, you know, whereas a lot of the older guys, they would say self-taught musicians and all, and they played a certain way. And, and as I said, Max was, was one of those guys that were trained properly. So he was, as I said, he was, uh, he was smooth, you know. And uh, as I said, that, that kind of turned me on. And uh, my uncle was an Aquarius, all right? So my first encounter as far as dealing with music came from my uncle who was this aquarius all right and all right when i started to pursue music as a young man when i was like say 13 i met another individual his name was james wilson all right he was my first one of my first band directors and he was an aquarius and he was the individual that was very instrumental in me playing the drums uh i wanted to play trumpet. And, uh, when Mr. Wilson came to our school, he had just arrived and he was recruiting individuals to be a part of the band. And as I said, I wanted to play a brass instrument. And by the time I had gotten there, all of the brass instruments were taken. And, uh, Mr. Wilson said, well, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't need any more brass instruments, but I do need drummers, you know? And I told him, I said, well, you know, I was bummed out I a Well, I can already play drums and, uh, he looked at me and you know, what do you mean? You can already play drums, uh, meaning that I had a sense of what that instrument was about because I had a neighbor who was in the band who played drums, and I used to watch him practice. And uh, you know, I used to pick up things, you know, natural things like buzzing the drumsticks to make a make to play a press roll. So there was things that I had a natural, say, a natural gift, you know, to say deal with that instrument. And Mr. Wilson identified with that. He saw that, and he asked me to show him that I could play. I played him a role, it blew him away. And so he took me home, he took me home to my mother and said, yo, you need to buy him some drums, all right? And my mother was reluctant, you know, because my my mother had bought my sister, my older sister, a piano, because my mom loved the piano and uh, she wanted my sister to play. So she bought her a piano, you know, she took a few lessons, but she, didn't, she lost interest. And consequently, because she lost interest, my mom was assuming that, hey, I would do the same thing. And, you know, it really pissed me off. Uh, And the deal was, uh, I told my mom, well, why would you, you know, why would you punish me because of what what my sisters? And she said, well, I'll tell you what. If you get you a job this summer, I'll help you get you a set of drums. And that summer I got a job working in the pet shop and working with my grandmother washing dishes in the restaurant. And uh, as I said, I I got that set of drums. And once I got that set of drums, believe me, boy, that was it. I did not look back uh that started me and uh as I said man uh it was something I didn't have any teachers, not really, you know, to the extent my teacher was Mr. Wilson, he was my first drum teacher, but he was a reed guy. So he had a concept of, of a drum kit which was four on the floor, two and four on the hi hat, two and four on the snare. So basically that was my first directive as far as playing that instrument four beats on the bass drum, two and four on the high in and the snare, you know, and a ride. So, and uh, as I said, I took it from there and uh, practicing my mama's living room, you know, and also see my mom was like, you know, she she was reluctant uh, to hear all of that noise, also me, me getting there, shall we say, you know, the practicing it all. And uh, and also see, listen, I have a, a, my second cousin, my mom's first cousin. Have you ever heard of, ever heard of Charles Brown? You remember Charles Brown? Sure. Merry Christmas, baby. You sure look good. That's my cousin. All right. My cousin, he's my second cousin. He's my mom's first cousin. And the deal was her double cousin, all right, from Texas, down off in the bottom, he dig in the country. My two brothers married two sisters. So they made them double cousins. And my mom was very proud of that when she tells the story about her, you know, because see, uh, I wasn't as wise as a young person, you know, cause most young people, you know, you don't hear the blues, you know, I, I, I blew up. I grew up doing the James Brown situation. I I grew up listening to to Jabo and, and, and John Stocks and, and Clyde Stubberfield. So that was my motivation. I wanted to be a tear. So the brew, the blues was not given the proper respect that I should have been given it. And not to mention my cousin being an icon, right? I should have said, so did put that in perspective. So when I first got my recording deal, my first deal, with Max said, "My mom told me you make sure the first thing you do when you get to California, you find your cousin." You know that was the last thing I did, Scott. <laughs> and when I finally met him, he was working in Hollywood at the Center Grill, doing doing the holiday season, his busiest time of the year. You did, and I'm walking up one of those side streets, heading north towards the boulevard. And the first thing that I hear is, "Merry Christmas, baby." <laughs> And I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself. I said, "Wow, boy, you know, listen to this." All right. So, and I finally get inside the center grill. I meet my cousin, and uh, he was he was very gracious, you know, and uh, really blew me away because he he was reminiscing and all. He started speaking to me like he was speaking to my mom and my father. You see, I'm a junior. All right. And he started talking. I said, wait a minute, cuz, you, you, you're getting things mixed up because you think you're you think you're talking to the old school. You're speaking to sort of things that I wasn't aware of that he was talking about. But as I say, he, he was reminiscing and all, and he was telling me about how about, you know how growing up with my mom and all. And I re- was really shocked to find out that when he told me that Johnny Watson had been his opening act as a young, as a young Johnny Guitar Watson. Watson had worked with my cousin as his opening act. You know, and my cousin was saying he said, Watson wouldn't have crossed you the way that he did if he had known that he was my cousin, you know. And uh, I you know, I cherished that because like I said that was, I wish I wish I could have said got the two of them together, you know, because as I said that was that was that was a plus because like I said, for sure, uh, at that particular time, uh, my cousin was a big star at that particular point, you know. Charles Brown, matter you told me during those days back in the day there was only two bands that could work in Hollywood back in those days two black acts. It was him and Nat King Cole. Same kind of a concept, you know, the piano trio and all, and they were the only two black acts at that period that was allowed to work in Hollywood, you know.
0: Well, wow. that's a lot of history right there, man. You sp- you, you went through like uh, three, four of my questions right there, so I appreciate that, um, ET. Um, I remember you mentioning to me before we got on air about, uh, you know, seeing JB and those guys. I mean, what was it like when you first saw uh, Jabo and, and Stubblefield and those guys? I mean, that really set off a fire inside you. What was that about?
1: Uh, That was, that was my inspiration, Scott. And the deal is because of that, it's like years later, you know, just recently uh, doing research. As a matter of fact, uh, there's uh, uh, Fred Wesley, uh, work with Watson. Uh, excuse me. Work with, with with James Brown. He was the, the trombonist, as a matter of fact. Uh, work with 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 uh, James. And uh, at one point, he was the leader of the band. At one point, and he just did a, a bibliography, and he told some of the stories of his involvement with with James. And to the extent that there were certain similarities in terms of how those old school guys reacted and related to their musicians, you know, they did they did things that weren't cool, as a matter of fact. They were some greedy bastards, as a matter of fact. Uh, very talented. Very creative individuals, but uh, they were they were greedy, uh, and uh, as I said, uh, some of the things that they did to the musicians was not cool. Uh, I grew up listening to James, as I said, and as I say to people, you know, like, hey, do you do you think that I was motivated to listen to James because James is this great singer? Listen, James Brown during the period that I was growing up, James was not Smokey Robinson. James was not David Ruffin, all right? James was not Marvin Gaye, all right? He was not none of them smooth guys. James was raw, rough, funk, dance you to death with all of them funky, funky beats. And that's why I was a fan, because of John Starks, you dig, Jabo, and Clyde Stubberfield. And because James was a dancing machine, not because he was no great damn singer, because he wasn't, He he was a character, all right? And that, but as I said, as far as an artist, incredible artist, I'll give him that. Uh, cannot take his, cannot take that from his props. I got to give him that. But when I found out how that asshole did, my brothers, my brothers that recorded Cold Sweat, Papa's got a brand new bag, you know, uh, the funky drum artist, he didn't pay them guys. Mm. They didn't get paid for that. It was like these assholes, he felt as though not only him, He's doing you a favor by allowing you to be a part of his organization. And relating to those, those periods, we're talking pre-1965, before integration and also wasn't no real protection for black musicians, you dig? So you were at the mercy of people like James Brown, and Ike, Ike Turner, you dig, to the extent, because these were the stars, they were independents, they ran their companies and all, and they pretty much dictated what policy was. And also, the dealers uh you are faced with as a musician, you're a quality musician, you're faced with, uh, you can say work with a James Brown, or you can work with an Ike Tina Turner, or you can work with a Johnny Guitar Watson, or you could be a milkman. So what do you think you're going to choose? You're going to probably choose what you feel is your calling to playing that instrument. Now, and back in the day, a milkman was a good job. You dig? if you had to provide for your family, you did. That was a steady, Job that would allow you to do the kind of things to take care of yourself and raise a family, as opposed to, say, being out on the road, say, haphazardly, working, not working, whatever. But the point is that I'm sure that given a choice, you would rather work with, say, your calling, which being a musician, as opposed to, say, being the mailman or the milkman. But in the ghetto during those days, those were two quality jobs. Being a mailman and doing being a milkman, to the extent that as a, as a as a young man, those were the kind of jobs that you would be looking to try to have. As a matter of fact, because they were dependable, you did you could count on that kind of a job. So, but as I said, those guys took it upon themselves to, you know, you I'm doing your favor by letting you work with me. You did, and in a way, they were. You know, to the extent that I say, you know, you get, if you, if you handle it correctly, you know, because for sure you, you network, you know, you, you network and you, you make your connections and all. And if you're smart and you got the right kind of skills and all, you can move on from that connection, you know, right. or you can even say, uh, say, start your own career, you know, based upon who you worked with, you know. Right.
0: No doubt. Um, what would you say, though, about their approach to drums or their style that you know really appealed to you
1: it was the funk man it was it was the funk and, you know and these guys like like um the research was for me uh john john stock Jabo Jabo was more of a jazz jazz musician you know to the extent he 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 had jazz shops all right and stubblefield was more of a funk blues guy he you did know? and uh it was like those beats, man, that, that those guys give those their their own their personal their shall we say their grooves, their their energy. Uh the way that they played those instruments. Now and James was an individual who could identify, he saw things. Matter of fact, imagine I'm 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 Clyde, I'm sitting on the kit. We're Getting ready to rehearse and all, and everybody that, but I'm setting up, kid and I'm playing, I'm messing with my axe and all. And I play, wow, I hit this. I got this funky little groove going on, you know. I got it going on. I'm just I'm just playing with my axe. And Mr. Brown walks in, and Mr. Brown says, Hey, man, keep playing that, keep playing that. And then he hollers at the bass player, Yeah, come over here. And he gives the bass player some kind of looks, and bass player, play this, play this, play this. He did, it. he did it. Okay, you got that going on, did it. Call to get the good dog guy. man, play this, play this, play this. Next thing you know, you got a hit fucking record, right? Because he's in—he's standing in the middle of his studio. You dig get his engineer, his soundboard, his recording machine, and as I said, he caught these guys uh, in a in a in a in a, in a moment of say creativity. He captures it. Don't give them no fucking credit. You did, it. but it turns into a hit record. James Brown gets paid. You know, don't pay them shit, right? They had to pay for everything. They had to pay for their hotel. They had to pay for their laundry. He did, and they had to pay. They had to pay for all kinds of shit. You know, and here's an asshole boy that was making a uh, million dollars, almost a million dollars a month, and he would come up with excuses about why he couldn't pay his man. You know, now Watson wasn't that cruel, but you know, because Watson did pay for hotels, he did pay for transportation, but uh, that were things that were done. Hold <laughs> on.
0: We'll get, we'll get to, we'll get to that, um, before we do, um, did you play with anyone professionally before Max? And I'm going to talk about Max in, uh, in a minute, but I wanted to make sure, did you play with anyone else professionally before them?
1: You know, I did, but it wasn't say, it wasn't say a situation where I was connected with them, uh, as a young musician working in Galveston, uh, and working in the Dallas area when I was in, in high school, uh, I work with Edda James. Uh, we our band was called the Soul Masters. Matter of fact, the guy's name was Marvin Peterson. Marvin Peterson and the Soul Masters. He changed his name. His name is Hannibal now. Hannibal Hannibal Peterson, who is he's a trumpet player, all right? And uh he and I, we all grew up together. We grew up together as young musicians. We went to Say elementary school together, junior high school together and high school together. And we went to college together and we played music together as young men. And uh, as I said, we had a band called the Soul Masters and we were uh, the house group for this organization that we used to work for. And uh, Etta James was hired to work that club. So we were the house band. And uh, she came in <laughs> And we, you know, we played, I said it all, so we're bringing up Miss James. Miss James comes up and she turns to the group and all and turns to our guitarist and said, give me, give me a a B-flat arpeggio, blotty, 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 you dig it? (laughs) And our guitarist name was Bubba. And Bubba turned around to all of us. He said, hey, man, just play the blues, you know? But, you know, she's all proper. Give me a B-flat arpeggio, you dig and uh, as I said, just play the blues. And uh, as I said, we played, and uh, to the extent that um, it was, you know, successful, you know, to the extent, that, hey, uh she had a, had a good show. Uh, and uh, as I said, so Ella James. And one once I had, um, I was I was at home, and uh, I went home, summer break from North Texas State. Another holiday, Thanksgiving. This going home for the holidays, and uh, that was a uh, a stacks review working. You did. We are talking, talking about Arthur Conley, a whole bunch of folks. I can't even remember. It's like I tried to find the data man, but I lost the data. But I, the it was the typical stacks review show that were going on back in the, in the in the in the late '60s. All right, but it was one of those shows. All right, I went to the show as I said I'm at home for the holiday. The drummer had got in an accident, and they count, They're going to cancel the show. As I said, we're we're in a place called the Moody Center in Galveston, out on the beach. And so the house is full and the announcer comes out and he's saying that, you know, that he's giving, he's giving everyone, you know, his apologies and all. And of course we're going to have to cancel the show, but does anyone out there play drums? You know, and I just happened to be standing up there in front and I said, yeah, I play drums. And uh, the deal was, as I said, I'm in Galveston. All right. And Galveston is across the bridge from Texas city, Texas, which is the mainland. So it'll take me about 15, 20 minutes to go back across the bridge and get my drums and all and come back. So we did that. And I played that show for everybody. No rehearsal, you know. But because I was, you know, aware of all of the current music, I had a sense of, you know, who, for instance, sweet soul music. Everybody knew Arthur Conley, sweet soul music. You know, as a matter of fact, that was written by uh, Otis Redding and Sam Cooke, as a matter of fact, sweet soul music. You know, so I played that particular show with Arthur Conley and a whole bunch of other artists, all right?
0: That's that's some on-the-job training right there.
1: Absolutely. And then when I went to North Texas State, Another situation being the house band. I work with Hank Crawford. Hank Crawford, mm-hmm. jazz saxophonist, used to work with Ray Charles, also, but I mean, on his own as a, as a as a jazz artist. But work with Hank Crawford, you know. And also, still in Dallas, going to North Texas State. Uh, I got my first recording deal with Patti LaBelle, Patti LaBelle, and the Bluebell. That was my first professional recording session. And from there, it kind of went because of what I had done with, with, with say, Patti LaBelle and all the people that I had worked with, they were impressed enough about what I had done. So, uh matter of fact, uh, Andre Lewis, back to Andre Lewis, uh, Andre had left the group that we were working with in Dallas, you know, because he was a part of it. He was a homeboy of Buddy Miles. So he left and he went and worked with Buddy. We're talking about 1968, 69, all right? And when he left Buddy Mouth, he formed the group Max Fan. And he called me. I'm still at North Texas. I'm a senior, as a matter of fact. I'm a senior at North Texas State. My mom thought I was crazy. (laughs) I'm a senior at North Texas State, and I get this opportunity to be a part of that group, you know? So I leave North Texas in my senior year, 1971. And I signed with Capricorn Records, based in Macon, Georgia, with Max Fan.
0: Sure yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. You see, you see, look, you see me on the end. I didn't even have a mustache. They had to paint a mustache on me. On, <laughs> on the Max Fan mindful. Yeah, on the end, that's Andre next to me. Max Fanny's in the middle and on the other side, that's
0: Marlo Henderson. Yeah, great. Well, everybody everybody should know that this was um, released uh, earlier this year, it's a compilation of those three albums and uh, it's just fantastic material, highly recommended, um, kind of ahead of their time. You guys didn't have the commercial success, but some great, great music.
1: Unfortunately, as the, listen, as I tell Max Ann, I call her P, that's her real name, her name is Paulette. Her real name is Paulette, all right? Paulette Parker, but call her P. And uh, in speaking to her about that, you know, that was, that was her baby as far as, you know, getting that together. And I was telling her, one of the things that makes Max Ann a plus, we were ahead of our time, electronically. Because of our instrumentation, we were using moogs, clavinets, ring modulators, wah-wah pedals, you know, phase shifters. We were using all of that kind of shit that everybody else wasn't, you dig? And so everybody else finally eventually caught up to us in terms of what they started to do as far as production. You know, we had been doing it in the beginning because, we, as I said, we prided ourselves on being one of the first electronic bands. You know, like slide them and all. We, As I said, we were electronic. And everything that was new, electronic, we were into it. You know, I used my, my Andre, Andre Lewis and Marlo Henderson, I used to call them spacemen because they were always on the cutting edge of all of the electronic stuff for keyboards and guitars, all right? For string instruments and keyboards. So another thing consequently, kind of because of that, our sound was different than everybody else's because it was, as I said, with the electronic, it was the digital thing coming. And also, that sound is what attracted Johnny Guitar Watson. That's why Watson came and found us, because of how we sounded and how Emory Thomas was playing them funky-ass drums.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to let people know that uh, that first record was in 1972 with Max Ann. So give, give everybody a frame of reference about what time we're talking about.
1: Yes, yes. Well, you know, as I said, uh, I got the deal in 71, and uh, we, uh, we formed a group up in San Diego. Uh, we uh, we were involved as a group. It was a uh, a house that was called Earth, and Earth was uh, owned by people that were managers. Managers at that particular time, a guy named Marty Silver, and uh, they had a bowling alley in Mission Beach, San Diego, that they had transformed into this incredible concert hall. And they were ahead of their times also because they were into the health foods and stuff, you know, uh, tie dye shirts, health food, health moths health uh bread muffins all all of that kind of stuff. You know, they were doing that as I said back in the early 70s, all right? And uh, as I said, we were a part of that you know the, the West Coast tie-dye beach beach thing, you did. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, we were the house band for the house of call earth and we worked with Elvin Bishop, Taj Mahal, who else we uh Dr. John uh, and some others, but like I said, we we were the opening act for those acts at Earth. And uh, as I said, that was that's 1971, 1970. By 1972, we had moved to Hollywood. You know, and we were living in the Hollywood Hills.
0: Was Paulette part of it when you were the backing band?
1: Yes, yes, yes. And that's like uh, uh <laughs> me and Paulette met for the first time uh in july 1971 in denver colorado we had never met but we kind of knew who each other were we because we ran into each other we're both heading west in other words coming to be a part of that group but we had never met but in the airport in colorado we, we ran into each other we just kind of just knew that we were we would both be together you dig know? she kind of looked like my sister as a matter of fact but as i said we met in the airport and from that point on, we were together. You know, for the next couple of years, as far as, as far as that group.
0: You know, before I forgot to mention, Et, I want to uh, let you know that I'm also an Aquarius.
1: <laughs> you see, you see that what I'm talking about? You see what I'm talking about? Yeah. Listen, as I said, one of my friends told me. Like, he said the circles are beginning to touch, Scott. That's really wild, man. You're on the, that's a boy, boy, boy. That's that fucks with me, buddy. Well, you know, in a in a positive way, but that's. That's that's a plus pal. Like I say, my musical career has been touched and been say driven by Aquarius personalities. As I said, my uncle, all right, my music teacher, all right, Johnny Guitar Watson, all right? Max Ann, all right? Well, my boss here at the Fowler Museum, Dr. Marla Burns, all right. And now you—that's
0: funny because I don't even run into that many Aquariuses, really.
1: Well, as I said, uh, as I said, the water sign—I uh, gotta have that water. So, guess what? Another thing—you just, just—I guess say you just confirm what I'm saying, man. The Aquarius individuals have been very instrumental in my life and my musical career. Honest to God, I guess. Well, they, I'm glad my, to be able oh, to
0: help continue that legacy.
1: <laughs> well, as I said, but that's a good sign. Well, it's a good sign. It's a damn damn good sign, brother. You know? <laughs> for real.
0: So so ET tell me about um you said you guys experiment with a lot of uh instrumentation that was new. Um but she could blow too. I mean, right? she had
1: been she had been uh the the opening act for Bobby Bland, you know? That's how she that's where shit came from. And she was also and I can I continue Turner. That's mm-hmm. that's where she had just left to become Mac fan. She had she had been with Ike Tina Turner. Hmm.
0: So how frustrated were you that um you know those records and songs didn't catch on more at that time? Were you were you feeling frustrated or were you just glad to be making
1: them? Initially I was glad to be a recording artist. Uh and uh, the deal was now I, in retrospect now, I feel that we could have probably been a bit more successful had my producer, Andre Lewis, our producer was searching for something. He was searching for something that didn't exist in his efforts to, shall we say, cross over and look for an identity that would give us say, say, some separation from other acts. It was like he was missing the point. All right. And uh, looking for something that didn't exist when he should have been like, right straight down the line, we're R&B, we're funk, you know? And it's like, but as I say, he was looking for a pop kind of a sound, all right? And also, it's like, I truly believe that had Andre not been trying to say, distinguish us and create, say, some kind of separation as far as other acts, you dig, we probably could have been successful, but also you have to take under consideration, also at that particular time, we were one of the only black bands with Capricorn records at that time, and also, Capricorn Records had the hottest art, rock and roll band in the world. The Allman Brothers. Yes, sir. So they really didn't have a lot of attention for this little black band that they had. They loved Max Men, but the focal point was the hottest rock and roll band in the world. Greg Allman and was kicking asses and taking names. Did they, so did, did they ever was, let
0: you open for them?
1: No, but see, that would see that could have been something that could have been probably a maybe a plus for us if something like that had been done. But like I say, that wasn't that wasn't the deal. But as I said, who knows if we'd had the right kind of representation that could could have brought that kind of concept or those kind of ideas, maybe as a matter of fact, that probably would have been perfect, you know, for us to say get off the ground had we been able to be an opening act for the Allman Brothers.
0: You look at it uh, time wise, you guys were actually a year or two ahead of like a Rufus and Chaka Khan, they hit it so big. Exactly, you know?
1: right label, the right label. You know, and as I said, Capricorn just didn't, they, they were new at dealing with black acts. You know, maybe if they had a little bit more experience, maybe, you know, because maybe they could have say taken that advantage that Rufus them did, you know, cause Rufus them, same concept, pretty much the same concept, but yeah, they had a, they had a better, better say, better deal, uh, better promotion. Better label. Of
0: course, they also got Stevie Wonder to write a song or two for him.
1: <laughs> that too. That too.
0: <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> tell me then how uh, Johnny uh, Guitar came to you know hear you guys, and uh, how that relationship got together.
1: Well, as I said, uh, working in the group, Max Fan. Uh, one of the things that we had going for us is. Uh, we were of a different generation. We were the generation that came up in the Motown era, and so we were motivated uh, a lot differently than, say, Johnny Watson and his generation, all right? Uh, We were motivated because of Barry Gordon, who owned Motown. So, wow, we wanted to own Motowns, too. We wanted to own record companies and and, and studios, too, because we saw that that was feasible, that 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 was a possibility whereas that wasn't something I'm sure that Watson and Prior to us, they didn't they didn't see things like that because it was a different different world, all right. But as I said, we saw that aspect of the of the industry. We wanted to say be writers, we wanted to be producers, and we wanted to own the studio. You, we said we wanted to seize the means of production, which was not only did we want to rent the studio, we wanted to own them bad boys. So we had a different outlook, all right. And because of that, we worked as the group Max Fan, but we also had a group. We had a production company called Super Groove Music. All right? And Andre was the lead producer. I was a producer, writer. Max producer, writer. We all producer, writers. You did? On the Super Groove. And as I, as, for Super Groove, we worked with Watson. We worked with Betty Everett. We worked with Pat LaBelle. We worked with a guy named Frankie Lee. Little Frankie Lee. Uh, you did? And as I said... When we weren't gigging, that's how we supplemented our income at that production company, working and recording with other acts. All right? now well, let,
0: me, let me just interrupt you for a moment, E.T. I just want to let the folks know that at that time, this is like 73 or so, Johnny Guitar Watson actually had been out of recording for like six years.
1: Absolutely. Like
0: and then he came back on Fantasy and got with you guys. So go on. Okay.
1: He came back on fantasy, and the deal was, as I said, working as Supergroove, Andre and, 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 and Watson hooked up. I, don't, I, I can't give you any particular and all, but, but Watson uh, became uh, connected with Andre. Andre brought Watson home. We're living in the Hollywood Hills, and that's when I was introduced to Johnny Guitar Watson. And Johnny Guitar Watson had contracted Supergroove to work on his next project, which was Listen, for what, Fantasy Records.
0: What, what did you think of him just when you first met him?
1: Uh Johnny Watson was a legend, Scott. Johnny Watson was a legend because I come from Texas. Johnny Watson came from Texas. Johnny Watson was one of the musicians that as a young 13 14 year old kid, he was the guy that we were hearing about in, in Houston. Gate Mouth Brown, uh, 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 oh shit, uh, Albert Collins, uh, Albert King, uh uh uh, 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 well, but all of those, all of those old blues guys, they were, they were the blues scene in Houston, and Johnny Watson was one of the young lions, all right, now. Johnny Watson was, as I said, he was a part of the of the, of the the clique that was going on in Houston. I'm in Galveston and in Texas City, which is about 30, 35 miles from Houston. But as far as the music scene, that was the music scene. And Johnny Watson was a part of that. Now, Watson left Houston in like 1950. You know, I was one year old. He's like, you know, he's like 14, 15 years of age. All right. But as I said, I grew up knowing about Johnny Watson because Johnny Watson was one of the one of the Houston Blues guys. You know, little Johnny get touched little Johnny Watson. You know, that's how I knew about him. But then as I said, once we were introduced to each other, it was like a perfect magic marriage because, hey, Johnny Watson from Houston, Emory Thomas from Galveston. We both Texans. We both play a Texas Blues. And when we played the blues, guess what, boy? The whole nother, thats one of the key things. But boy, we could play the blues. But me and Guitar Watson could play the blues. And see, one of the things that Johnny Watson lost, and what what led to the end of our relationship, was he he lost the reality. Listen, between Johnny Guitar Watson and Emory Thomas, we were self-contained. We were self-contained. Just one second. We We were self-contained All right And the deal is Between myself And Johnny Watson We could Produce music Just Johnny Watson And Emory Thomas One of the keys To record production is Drums and bass. My production company is called Bottom Band Production. That's why, because I know, I learned through the process of learning the business and working and sessioning. and all, one of the keys to making a record is the drum sound and the bass sound. That's why these assholes, these rapper guys are making all of the money that they're making is because they have a drum machine. The drum machine gives them a foundation and a base to be able to do what it is that they do. A beat and some words which is what drives what they're doing they're very successful at it but if they didn't have a beat a drum machine they couldn't have achieved what they achieved so as i said because of the drums and because johnny watson was a keyboard player and as i said at that particular time the transition from say the instruments were like turning into keyboards triggered all kinds of things horn sounds guitar sounds You did all kinds of sounds were being triggered from a keyboard and that was the deal, that was the key between Johnny Watson and I. Johnny Watson played keyboards and because of the technology, Watson and I could produce an album in a week. That's what was so special about us.
0: But uh, with Lewis and those guys, you were on like two of his records, right? In Fantasy and then before he made the jump.
1: As a matter of fact, that's, that's how we were working. As I said, Super Groove, Super Groove was hired by Watson, to do that project with Fantasy, all right? Listen, and The Lone Stranger. And, as I said, uh, he hired us to do those records. As I said, he hired that production company to do his music, all right? So now- that, la-
0: that, that last one, The Lone Stranger, was kind of a, a bridge, uh, sound-wise too, sort of Transitioning him from like R&B blues a little bit toward funk. And then.
1: See, now listen, I believe this is, listen, he was growing. This is my belief. He had been off. He had been say through hiatus. All right. And he was coming back and he was reorienting himself to what was actually going on. So he was growing. That first record, listen, he had been out. Okay, he was riding a certain way because he had just gotten back, all right? Now, Johnny Watson was getting more confident, You did, and uh, to the extent that when he did the Long Stranger, he was confident enough to say that, hey, this is going to be a hit record, E.T., and it was, all right? He called it, all right? And ain't that a bitch? He called it, Scott. He said, E.T., this is going to be a hit record. You dig it?
0: How, how how did he also develop? He started he changed, you know, his style visually with the cowboy hats and the well, you know, the,
1: as I said, he you know the deal with Watson had always, shall we say, reinvented himself as far through the years and all being a blues guy, but the deal he came back, he came back as a funk a funketeer. You dig mm-hmm. it? And so in other words, I'm a funketeer. That's my generation. George Clinton, them, all right. So he came to my space, all right? He came. To get what I had, which was funk. And as a matter of fact, Johnny Watson was uh, man, he was a gangster funker, funk, as a matter of fact. He a mass, master blues guy, incredible funkateer. Played incredible funk. And uh as I said, come on, blues and, and funk is in hand in hand glove, you know. And uh that was that was the thing that gave him his identity, man. did nobody don't nobody sound like Johnny Guitar Watson. I mean, guitar wide, vocal wide, don't nobody sound like Johnny Guitar. You know, no, that's this day.
0: for sure. That's for sure. But I mean, how unusual, et, for somebody like you know, 20 years after they did their first record that was a hit, to completely reinvent themselves like that.
1: Well, and as I say, Watson was man. Watson was one of those kind of, come on, you Aquarius ass. So speak, soul speak. The Aquarium. 50 years from now, he was all. Listen, he was always ahead and abreast of shit. You did. And you and, and you wouldn't even know how and why because, as I said, because characteristically you guys, Aquarius individuals, they tend to see ahead. You did, and I have to give him that because on numerous occasions he demonstrated that ability to me. Like, wow, how the fuck did he know that? You know, he was that kind of an individual, man. He knew certain things. Matter of fact, man, Watson used to tell me things about drums that didn't hit me until like. 30, 40 years later. I said, damn, because I, in the process of me learning and holding my skills, I learned, I got. I came to, I learned something. And then I said, damn, Watson told me that 30 years ago. But he told me, he told it to me in a different context. Johnny Watson played drums. Johnny Watson played jazz drums. He didn't play funk drums, he played jazz drums. So a lot of the things that he was talking to me about, he was talking from a jazz Concept, you did, and to the extent that it was going over my head because I'm a -a funketeer. And I said, What the fuck are they talking about? But as I evolved learning to play the instrument better and playing jazz, then I began to hear some of the things that he had told me years before. I said, How the fuck did he don't forget? you can't, don't forget about the dick hang bang. I said, Huh. Don't forget about your dick hang bang. Your titty hang dang dang titty hang dang 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 titty hang. Let the titty hang titty hang titty. That's dotted eight no titty hang titty hang titty hang titty. He told me let the titty hang, you know. But that was the way that he used to learn. He had hooks and ways that he was to express himself and say things. And not only him, but a lot of the old school guys, and they would sing things the same way. Like I say, that's dotted eight Now, titty hang titty hang titty hang titty hang dang dang titty hang eight notes dang 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 titty hang titty hang titty dang dang titty hang dang titty hang. Dot note dotted eight notes. Eight notes, you did, but that's how he described it. And don't forget about your dick came bang. Bop, ooh, bop, boop, bop, boom, bop, the block, boom, dick hang bang, right back on the beat. Dick came bang like a triplet, right back on the beat, you know. And as I said, but those are things the jazz guys knew, you did. Funk guys, you know, you you, you funk guys, you playing the locked in a locked-in pattern, so you don't really sway from that locked in pattern, pretty much. But jazz breathes, you did. It has openings, it has spots where there's. No music at all, it flows, you dig? So music has, jazz has dynamics. It goes up, it goes down and all. So music is played that way. But funk is pretty much a lock set beat and that's pretty much a lock, you dig? And once you commit to that, that's basically what you'll be begin playing beginning, middle and end, is that. Jazz can flow, you dig? And consequently it has different dynamics as a matter of fact. And as I said, and Watson knew about those dynamics, you know, because Watson had been a jazz musician. You know, he had a matter of fact. He had a jazz album playing uh, jazz piano as a matter of fact, jazz piano with bass, bass, and and, and drums.
0: But he was all, all self-taught.
1: He's also, excuse me.
0: What, what was he all self-taught?
1: Yes, yeah. yes. And that's the deal. Like, I tell folks, see, John, listen, Johnny Watson was a genius. All right, Johnny Watson was a genius because Johnny Watson played piano. You know about piano? Piano is a lazy instrument. You don't just play. You got to play that bad boy. You really have to play that instrument, all right? Johnny Watson was a self-taught instrument instrumentalist, all right. It's all, it's, it's, I think his grandfather gave him a guitar and all, but the deal was his first instrument was piano, all right. Johnny Watson could play Oscar Peterson compositions verbatim, all right. Oh, you don't think you don't think that that's a sign of genius? If you know anything about music, if you know who Oscar Peterson was, and Johnny mm-hmm. Watson could play Johnny Johnny Watson could play compositions by Oscar, you did. He said, No shit. That's how he used to impress us when he used to come up to the house with Max fan Cause we had a piano up there, right? He'd come up and he'd rock, he'd rock the box on the on the ass, you dig? Playing Oscar shit. Wow. But, I, but that was him impressing us like, in other words, hey, I'm a bad ass. You know, I don't just only play the blues, I play this piano. You dig? And as I said, he would come up and hang out, and he'd be playing the piano, maybe he'd be playing the dog shit at the piano, you know, and that's the deal. His main instrument is piano, and I think that's probably why Mr. Watson doesn't get his props. You dig? Uh, Watson doesn't get his props among a lot of the, a lot of the a lot of the true guitarists. Like for instance, I have uh, a report with uh, Dr. Kenny Burrell here at UCLA, and uh, when I was telling them about I work with Watson, and you know, they, you know, they, they don't see you know, you know it's like because these are say, uh, gorilla guitarists, you know, Kenny Burrell, uh, a legend. You know, and they play the instrument a certain way. And uh, I think because Watson played the guitar a certain way, they didn't give him his prop because guitar used the cheetah bar, he used that clamp, you dig? And most guitarists like Kenny Burrell, them, they don't smile on that shit, you dig? You ain't no real guitarist if you're using that that, that bar, in other words, you dig? Well, it? Albert
0: Collins did too.
1: Okay, but I believe talking about, listen, that's cool among that, that that musician, that blues musician. Because you say that's the norm. I agree. But when you're talking about people like Kenny Berail them, guess what? They ain't playing with no clamp, Scott. You dig? <laughs> and they ain't playing no just singing notes. They playing notes, they playing chords, and they are wearing your ass out. You know, we're talking about Kenny Burrells, West Montgomerys, and all that kind of shit, all right? As I said, yeah, them blues guys, B.B. King, yeah! You know, they didn't get away with that put a clamp. You know, now, I don't think B.B. B.B. didn't play with no clamp. But, uh, but as I said, many of them did. And like I said, but it was, it was sufficient for them to play the blues. That's the deal. They wasn't playing giant steps, you dig? <laughs> Come on. And, uh, and as I said, but Watson prided himself on being a jazz musician.